0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome again to In-Town Community Church. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm also one of the pastors here. Let's pray as we dig into God's word this morning. Father God, we love you. We ask that the very thing we just sang about would become true in our own lives and uh, that the reputation of this church body, how the world sees us, would be beautiful and pleasing to you, not because of who we are or because of some perceived idea of excellence on our behalf, but because of you and because of what you're doing in us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I'd like to welcome you also to a series that we have been in the midst of here, week two of Embodied. And if you weren't with us last week, what we're referring to by that is the church, but specifically not the the tendency kind of in, especially in America, that uh, the church is something that we consume. We're here to have our felt needs met, but also not only that the church is a place for us to do stuff, for us to serve God, but rather saying that being a part of Christ's body and specifically a local Iteration of Christ's body does something over time in you. God uses the body of Christ, the church, as a means of transforming you. And so we are not only, we we don't get only to embody the church out in the world, but He embodies Himself amongst us. And this week we're going to talk about two words we're going to talk about identity and we're going to talk about culture. First off, let's talk about identity. Sociologists and cultural anthropologists say something that might strike you as strange. It's that you do not have an identity. Well, maybe a little bit more minute than that. You have multiple identities. But we're not talking necessarily about multiple personality disorder or something like that. Rather, we're talking about this idea that you have many different aspects of yourself. And that depending on the situation, you lean into these different aspects of yourself at different times of your life. I mean, you know, this is everything from um, I am a father and I'm a husband and I'm a pastor, I'm a man, I'm white. I like certain hobbies, I'm this tall, I have no athletic ability whatsoever, etc., etc., etc. I lean into different aspects of that at different times of my life. At the same time, however, those aspects are not, they're not just like a smorgasbord, a buffet that my brain goes into and ascertains my situation and says, ooh, I think I'm going to have this and this, and this this week. It's much more unconscious than that. And part of that means you have different aspects of yourself that rise to the top and are kind of really who you are. For example, um, some people, um, how, we, we all have a heritage, right? We all have um, ethnic background, national background. It's kind of one of the, the unique um, sort of unique, wonderful things about America that we learned about in childhood. Some of us, we kind of have done genealogy things and we know who we are and we think of uh, who we are, and we're like, ah, eh, cool, whatever. Others of us bleed that. My wife's family, for instance, is Italian. Um, I have a, a number of different nationalities too, but my family, we, my side of the family, we don't really think about that. I walk into my wife's uncle's house and the walls smell like pasta sauce. And it is glorious, okay? So some of us lean into that. Others of us, maybe we think about ourselves as family people. I mean, all of us would say, right, we care about our families and those of us who are parents, we care about our kids and those sorts of things. But, but some of us, maybe we have a career, but we like our career, it's fine, but really we live for the weekend. We live for our children. We live for providing for us. And the real source of joy that we get out of our lives and fulfillment isn't really what we do as much as the fact that what we do facilitates this other thing, right? And then others of us are exactly the opposite. Increasingly in our world, we lean into our identity by what we produce, by what we do, by our vocation, by our job. Some of you have been hearing about this guy lately in the news. If you don't know who this is, this is Elon Musk. Elon is the richest man in the world. Uh, he is currently worth somewhere upwards of $265 billion, depending on how much Twitter is worth this week or not, which he just decided one day to buy for 40-something billion dollars. I can't even imagine those sums of money, right? Right. Well, some interesting things about Elon. Um, you'd think somebody who had $265 billion, I mean, and that is, that is, you know, think of your richest celebrity that you've ever followed or thought about and then magnified net worth by thousands of percentiles, right? Musk works an average of 80 to 100 hours a week, like actual hardcore work. You'd think if you were worth this much money, you would not work twice as much as the average person. At the same time, Musk famously does not own a home. He dresses pretty much the same way all the time, does not wear a Rolex, and drives a Tesla, I guess, but uh, not, not as a status symbol, right, right? The thing that fascinates me about Musk is, is that sense that despite having all of the ability in the world to lean into other aspects of his identity, he has chosen to be about his work. He is Tesla. He is SpaceX. He is the boring company. We will see about Twitter. But r- realistically, this sense that it wouldn't matter if the man had a trillion dollars. He'd still probably work 80 to 100 hours a week because he is what he does. And I- I've thrown up a second ago, I actually threw up this, uh, this fun toy here. Uh, many of you are familiar with, mostly because I just want you to think about that idea that, that functionally, consciously and unconsciously, our identities and the cultures that go along with them are always kind of being navigated and negotiated. They're always kind of in a little bit of conflict in our brains. We're always thinking about what is most important. Who am I? Who am I actually leaning? Wh- what aspect of myself am I leaning into? We might not be doing that using those terms, and we might not be doing that consciously, but we're doing it. And with those different iterations, those different aspects of identity, come culture, come ways of living in the world. So when I think of myself as a man, I can just think of myself as a man, but even unconsciously, I have thousands of years of history, right, of different conceptions of gender and masculinity and stuff that sinks into who I am. When I think of myself as a dad, another wash of that goes over me. When I think of myself as a husband, when I think of myself as a pastor, and so on and so forth. And the same is true for you. When we become Christians, we get a new identity. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone was in, is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in the same way, Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He goes on to say, Neither will fornicators or adulterers or idolaters or stealers or, and he just goes, a laundry list of things. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's a clarity in our faith that says no matter who you were, no matter what you did, Jesus comes in and radically transforms your life in that moment, no matter what. But it doesn't always feel like that. Just because you become a Christian and we do receive the Holy Spirit and he does work in us even in the moment and some of of us do have somewhat radical stories of God delivering us almost immediately from certain things, Paul had one of those stories. The gospel isn't magic fairy dust. And we live the reality in our lives of what Paul talked about, kind of throwing this old man back on us, this dead body that says, well, really, the gospel, Jesus, what he's done in us, yes, is something much deeper than just an identity aspect but he's also that. Our Christianity is always something that we're navigating and that is working its way down deeper and deeper and deeper into our lives and into our souls. What we're going to talk about this week with respect to Embodied, what is Jesus doing in you through a church, is that as we are all in the process of our identity in Jesus working its way down more and more, deeper and deeper into us, as we're all in the midst of that together, God uses that collectively to speed up the process. And he uses that collectively for us to rub against one another and to grow and to change and ultimately to build a gospel culture in this place whereby not only our words or our music or our prayer or the architecture of the building or the teaching or whatever, but our very lives are the thing that speaks the gospel to the world. Emily, would you come on up? Emily's going to read for us a passage, again, just like last week, from the book of 1 Corinthians. And then we'll unpack an example of what I'm talking about.
1: This morning's scripture passage comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 21 21 and 33 through 34. (laughs) But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thanks, Emily. All right, a little bit of context. Maybe some broad context and then more specific. Broadly, 1 Corinthians is a letter by Paul, to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is a special place. It is a very, very messy church. At the same time, actually be careful and don't oversell its messiness. Don't hear from me an oversell of its messiness because in certain ways, it's actually just like most of the churches you and I are familiar with. Corinthians actually talks about um, a group of conservative theologically astute people who have broken up into theological fight clubs and debate against each other about the right way to do church. And at the same time, it also has people who are maybe Christian, some of them saying they really are trying to live out their faith, but they have absolutely no clue what that means. And so they end up um, being lost in some very, very difficult sins. Paul hears about these things. He planted the Corinthian church, but then he goes away, plants other churches. He hears about these things, and we don't have, you know, he can't just catch a Delta flight back to the Corinthian church and get there and be there in person. So he writes a series of letters to help deal with some of the issues, hopefully encouraging, sometimes also pretty difficult. And one of them is that people are getting drunk At the Lord's Supper. Now, for some of you, this is really, really hard to understand, right? Okay, so the Lord's Supper, for instance, remember, is what we do here. This is, right? I mean, imagine some of you guys trying to get drunk at the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you could if you tried, you know, rushing up here or whatever. So understanding this passage requires just a little bit more of an understanding of the different ways the church has uh, been articulated in and lived out in our lives. Um, This is a picture of one of the earliest church buildings that we have. Um, This is uh, what's called uh, Dura Europas. It's in Syria. Um, It's the third century. So it's about 200 years after what we're talking about here. But it's important, I wanted to show you, because um, what happened as people became Christians, originally, we find in the book of Acts, people were meeting in homes and people were meeting in the temple. However, the church got big, fast, and the church spread quickly. And so what would happen over time is that richer and more influential individuals within the church would really sacrificially give up portions of their own homes to kind of semi-permanently become the places for worship. So when you and I think of like a small group or something like that, or maybe even a house church, I think about it just kind of plopping down in my living room. That's not what we're talking about. What if, hey, the house church got big enough that instead of plopping down in the living room, you took your basement, cleared everything out of your basement, and made your basement a permanent sanctuary? That is kind of more of what we're talking about. And so I wanted to show you this map because as the church got larger, more of the house got taken over by the church and more of the house got taken over by the church until finally you had these people saying, fine, just take the whole house. Praise God, we're growing awesome. And it was still kind of built like a church. Further, this idea of the Lord's Supper worship kind of happened in the early church the way we do it now. Most of the aspects that we do now were present. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, also prayer, also worship, a form of preaching that was a lot more like reading one of these letters um, verbatim rather than someone, you know, expounding on what is now the text. But they didn't exactly look the way we do them. We didn't have a worship service from 1045 to 1215. No, rather you'd show up at the house and all of these elements would happen, often stretched out into an entire day. And so the concept of the Lord's Supper, which we take at the end of our service each week, wasn't necessarily always a part of the worship service. Just like when Jesus introduced the Lord's Supper um, as a part of the Jewish Passover meal, many churches back in this day when 1 Corinthians was written would celebrate it as a, as a part of, um, or at least in conjunction with, a larger church potluck every week. So you might actually, you know, when we think about you know tithing, giving offerings to God, and we think of them financial. You might actually, if you were a winemaker, you might bring your best wine each week. And that would be what you would bring. You might bring food each week. Your mac and cheese casserole that your grandmother taught you would be your offering for the people of God each and every week. And it was a beautiful thing. Until it wasn't. Which is what we see here in the book of 1 Corinthians. What Paul is describing is that people would be not doing things in order, but rather would be jumping ahead, eating their own food, getting drunk, treating this like a party. And what's happening comes back to this question, what are your identities? What's happening in the Corinthian church here is that individuals often well-to-do individuals who had found Christ or been found by Christ and who had been transformed by him. We're talking about real Christians here. Paul's not talking about people that need to get kicked out of the church. He's talking about real people he loves. But what they're doing is they're falling back on other aspects of their identity or former aspects of their identity than their Christian identity. Imagine back here in the first century, if you were well-to-do and you were invited to a dinner party, you would get a place of honor. You would sit in the best seats in the house, in the best room of the house, because we weren't talking about fellowship halls here. You'd actually have real rooms. You'd be sitting in the best room in the house. You'd get served first. And because we didn't buy bulk wine at Costco, you would get the best choice of wine, Also, you'd sit with all the other people who were important as well, and you'd eat before anybody else. Not only would you do that, but why not get drunk? You don't have responsibilities. You have servants who will clean up for you. You are not making a three-mile walk of shame home. You have the ability to do what you want, to lean into that aspect of your identity. And so that is what is happening here in the Corinthian church. People are coming to church, they are worshiping, but then they're kind of stepping out of that Christian identity once the reading of the letter is done, once the prayers are done, and they're falling back into a deeper identity. What was it supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like this. This is a fresco, which means a painting onto the very wall itself, the plaster of a church in Rome in the fourth century. Again, these are the best ones we've got. So, again, we're talking a couple centuries later, but I want to give you a visual for what we're talking about. The gospel is the great leveler, Jesus is the great leveler. None of us deserve to be friends with Jesus, none of us deserve to have a place at his table. None of us can be good enough. None of us can be skilled enough. None of us can impress him enough or guilt him enough into that identity. And yet, because of his sacrifice, because of his love for us, all are welcome. Anyone who is a member of his family, anyone who comes to him is welcome at that table. And so, what you had in the early church when things were not going the way Paul is talking about is this. You had, you see there in the center, an individual who is not what we would often think of as European medieval artwork of a Christian. You have people of different ethnicities. That person is flanked by two children who were pretty much seen as like one touch above slaves and one touch below horses in the ancient world in value. You've got at least one, if not two, women at this table. Likewise, there would be no way a man of power would have ever been seen drinking with or after a woman in this day and age. And yet this is not an idealized picture of the church. This is how it actually was. You would have individuals meeting together who outside the church doors, society, culture, identity would say are supposed to be enemies, are supposed to not touch each other, are supposed to not value each other, are supposed to not speak to each other. And suddenly, because of Jesus, the table is literally flattened. And Paul's vision for these beautiful, wonderful feasts is that people who would never get to spend time together do. And sometimes in miraculous ways. I mean, I have not been able to get out of my head this week as I've been studying. One commentator talked about specifically the idea of Corinth and how Corinth had a vast um, prostitution value. Like It was just something that almost every male of power and authority did in the city. It was part of the culture. You would literally have had men who had found Jesus and were being transformed by him and the very prostitutes they had visited sitting at a table together, sharing, passing the Lord's Supper to each other. The gospel is the great flattener of all things. And so what Paul is saying here is that as that gets lived out, The gospel identity is pushed deeper and deeper and grows in power in us. Now, does this happen right away? No, it doesn't. As I said, this is not magic fairy dust. It's also not magic casserole. This doesn't just immediately happen. We get an example of this. We studied it last year. Paul writes to a man named Philemon. Philemon is one of Paul's friends. Paul also has made a new friend. His name's Onesimus. And Paul writes to Philemon, sending this letter with Onesimus. Why? Because Onesimus is a slave. And Paul is saying, look, Philemon, I could call rank on you as like one of the heads of the church, but that wouldn't change you. I want you to see Onesimus as your brother. And I want there to be to change to happen because you see the realities of what your deeper identity in Christ is should mean for your life. This idea of the gospel building a culture where this is happening over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again over a long period of time is what I'm talking about when we talk about the world seeing a gospel culture in us. As we already sang about John chapter 13, Jesus says specifically, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's hard is often the way we take this passage is sort of the way that like, like, the way I've heard (laughs) and been sadly guilty of this once or twice in my own life of saying, man, I love my kids, but I don't like them. I mean, Yes, sometimes that is a reality, but, but my heart hurts when I think about that at the same time because what that articulates is this sort of like meta value that says, yeah, I love my kids, but my day-to-day treatment of them does not reflect that wider reality. I don't think any of us, well, maybe, <laughs> none of us publicly at least would say we don't love the rest of the body of Christ, Okay reality, the way we actually lean into that, is not not always what actually happens. Well, what Jesus is talking about here isn't the meta-idea. It's not the theological truth that we're supposed to love one another. It's the actual reality that there's this crazy beauty that somehow, as the world comes and itself, its culture, rubs up against us together, something incredible happens that more than our preaching and more than our singing and more than our teaching and more than our prayer and more than our service, somehow all those other things are magnified, all those other things are given credence by the actual way we treat one another, by the actual way we rub up against one another in our reality. That's what Jesus is talking about. I'm all for mission, and I love worship, and I love preaching, and I love teaching. I love the church. I fell in love with the church. It's how God called me to be a pastor. But I've realized over the years, and I'm not talking about in town. I'm just talking about my own Christian experience through a couple of decades here, that all of those things, it's like a cake, all right? You can look at a cake and know whether the cake is pretty or not. And if the cake is prettier, there's a higher likelihood that there was care given to that cake. And so if you're a betting man, you could probably bet that the prettier the cake is, and maybe even the more expensive the cake is, it's going to taste better because care was given and skill was put into that. But not always true. We can have... Great preaching, great icing. We can have really, really pretty fondue. It can be one of those, you know, cake boss seven foot tall monstrosities. If there's not flour in the cake, if you decided to use baking soda instead of baking powder, if, God forbid, you used salt instead of either one of those things, which I actually did once with chocolate chip cookies, it is disgusting. And I will tell you guys, I believe that many people in the American church right now, what they are experiencing is that we spend a lot of time caring about the fondue and not realizing that the baking powder was the big deal. We spend a lot of time choosing our church based on the consistency of the dough and not thinking were the eggs rotten before it went in. And what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying is that those qualities, those things, the day-to-day articulations of the gospel, those are the things that when the world sees us, they go, man, something is different about them. Not, man, those guys can pull off a great program. Not, wow, those guys can attract a lot of people. But man, something's different about them. And I want to know more. That's what, why Paul is worried about people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Now, given that you and I are not rushing the stage and trying to get drunk on this, I want to talk just very, very briefly. What do you do with this? What can you do with today? I think there's three things. The first I want to say, I'm just going to call it reaching in there are legitimate conflicts in anybody, in any family. And Scripture is very, very clear that those are the type of things, like rotten eggs, that really mess up our worship. Mess up your worship. Mess up your connection with God. If you are in conflict with somebody here, I would really encourage you, deal with it. And I don't mean deal with it in some, like, you know, mean way. I mean, Please let us help. Let other people help. Don't be silently bitter for a day or a week or a decade of sitting in these seats. God longs for you to be able to connect with him and connect with the people around you, and you are not good enough to just say, oh, that wound's never going to heal, but let me connect with God. Some of us are in that boat, and I just want to encourage you to search your heart, to think about that and not a perfunctory, yeah, I'm sorry, whatever, but a real, like, hey, let's sit down, let's have coffee, let's cry together, let's bring an elder in if we need to, let's talk, let's actually find repentance and healing. I think a lot more of us are in this boat where we we don't really have conflict with anybody, but it's just really, really still easy for us to lean into our own um, preferences our own identities other than the gospel. It's easy for us to break off into those different rooms of that place. And because of that, it is easy for us, even though we care about Jesus, to create a space, a group, an organization, whatever, where we are never challenged in our faith by the people around us because everyone else around us is just like us. And I don't mean this from sort of a worldly woke kind of just that values diversity for the sake of diversity. No, I mean the reality of you and I are different. And if you actually live life with me long enough, you're going to find out that I'm a sinner and you're going to be sad and then you're going to realize I'm going to sin against you and then you have a choice. Stay with me in community. Do the reconciliation that I'm talking about or go somewhere else where somebody hasn't sinned against you yet. Those are your choices. And my longing for you and for our body together is that we could be a place that slowly over time gets to burr the gospel deeper and deeper in us through having real relationships with real people, including and especially those who in different ways are different from us. And I think when we do that, reaching out, can really happen. You know, we live in a world today which is very, very different from the world of even 20 or 30 years ago. Most of the time, and of course there are exceptions to every rule, but most of the time you are not going to tell your neighbor about your really cool church and they're going to be like, whoa, I've wanted to go to a place like that and suddenly they come with you to in town. But if we're not the type of place where the gospel is our aroma where we're literally doing real life, if we just look like the pretty cake and we don't actually taste like it, then the moment we are actually able to invite our friends, our neighbors, our non-Christian brothers or brothers and sisters just in kind of global uh, world, not Christianity, into a small group event or to an outreach thing or just to coffee or whatnot, They sit there and they go, oh, yeah, this is just like everything else I'm experiencing. This is just like everything else. There's nothing different. There's nothing special. But once we can honestly feel like we're doing these first two things, we can start brainstorming what's it look like to get other people in contact with these real, wonderful, broken, beautiful saints that's worth brainstorming. That's, worth, that's outreach that's worth getting excited about. That's conversation that's worth having with your friend. When you get to tell them not the story of, hey, we did this cool program, but man, this really, really hard thing happened to me. But it's okay now, because of the gospel. Man, not that, oh, that concert was really, really awesome. But those people are singing with so much joy and gusto because of these real things that are happening in their midst. It's not just praise God that the deacon's offering, mercy in, has money, and we want to help you. But what's it look like to come alongside each other and be able to cry together and laugh together and see Jesus provide for one another and not feel ashamed at touching that? This is the gospel. And as you and I do that, over the weeks and months and years and decades of our life, God works his transformative power and moves the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper in us until one day, finally, when Paul says we no longer see as through a glass darkly, but we get to see him face to face. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We don't love you as we ought to love you. We are sorry for that. And at the same time, oh, we are so excited that while you're not okay with that, you are because you know what you're doing, working on us and growing us. And God, I repent and I pray that my brothers and sisters would as well for the ways in which we have not done that, then I bring us back to confession, God, not out of shame, but the exciting hope that real friendships, real relationships, real family can continue and is not contingent here on how good of a person I am. God, help us. You are and you do, and we praise you for it, and we pray in your name. Amen.